0: All right, here we go. Gospel is catch-up. I know that's a bold claim, and surely you expect me to explain why I would say that, and then uh, don't worry, after the second service today, the elders will be help holding my trial for heresy, so everything will be just fine. But I, I am going to explain this. Um, many of you have heard of Malcolm Gladwell, right? Malcolm Gladwell? All right? So in in September 2004, Gladwell wrote an essay for The New Yorker. He writes a lot of essays for The New Yorker. He's written a lot of books too. Uh, But he writes for The New Yorker. And in 2004, he wrote an essay for The New Yorker titled The Catch-Up Conundrum. Has anybody read that essay, The Catch-Up Conundrum? Yes, John has. (laughs) Good. All right. It is an absolutely fascinating, all of his stuff is fascinating, but really interesting. And I was captivated by this essay. I've read it four, five, six times uh, as I am by much of his writing, I, I, I love this guy's writing. And, and as many of you know, I tend to see um, gospel themes and gospel threads and, and, and points of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, in, in many different cultural tableaus, such as movies and music and television, as well as in Gladwell's essays and books. It's one of the reasons why I enjoy reading them. So, uh, in this essay, The Catch-Up Conundrum, uh, Gladwell asks this question. He frames the essay with this question. He says, "Why are there so many varieties of mustard, and yet ketchup has remained the same for so many years if you If you think about it, you know you go into the store uh, there 's heinz heinz ketchup that 's pretty much it and, and Then he goes in and he starts talking about um, gray Poupon and when that came out. How many of you are old enough like I am to remember when gray Poupon first came out remember those ads you know pardon me but would you have any Grey Poupon guys in the I don't know the Rolls Royce or whatever and 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 suddenly after that after Grey Poupon caught on suddenly there's this entire new mustard market mustard varieties mustard flavors there's a gourmet mustard market mustard just exploded the same could be said for spaghetti sauce Uh, Several decades ago, there were were a couple of spaghetti sauces, that was it. Now, as I understand it, there are more than 100 varieties, not companies, but varieties of spaghetti sauce flavors and and types that you can buy. And and what's interesting about spaghetti sauce is that spaghetti sauce, of course, is tomato-based, just like ketchup is, and yet ketchup remains the same. Every effort at expanding ketchup... Uh, into new flavors or into a gourmet market has ultimately failed and there's actually a long list of people who have tried to go into the gourmet ketchup market to do what Grey Poupon did to mustard who have lost their life savings, who have gone bankrupt trying to do that. It just hasn't worked. And so the question is why? Why is that true? And what, what seems to be correct is that the same rules that seem to apply to things like mustard and spaghetti sauce and olive oil and salad dressing and tea and virtually everything else in the supermarket, that that same rule does not apply to Heinz ketchup for some reason. Or you could say that those same rules apply differently to Heinz ketchup. And here's why. There are five known fundamental tastes of the human palate salty, sweet, bitter, sour, and umami. Now, I didn't know what umami, I knew what those other four were, but when I was reading the essay, I didn't know what umami was, so I had to figure out what that, is. And, and for some of you, it's like, well, it's that stuff you eat before sushi, isn't it? No, it's not that. It, it, umami is is this, it, it, it's the part of your, of your palate that, that kind of has that protein, full-bodied gravitas taste that you get whenever you, have, whenever you eat like fish stock or cured meat or mother's milk or aged cheese. It's sort of an overpowering, strong protein kind of a taste. Uh, what, what food tasters, what professional food tasters say is that umami is what gives some foods something called sensory heft. Sensory half. So anyway, there's five palates: sweet, salty, sour, bitter, and umami. Now, all of us have foods that we like and foods that are our favorites, but they are usually they are those foods that we like um, usually appeal to just one or two of our favorite palates. We actually have favorite palates as well, and so the foods that we like appeal to those favorite palates, and that's why we have conversations and debates over what foods we like to eat and what we like best and what we prefer and where we like to go and all that stuff. And and so I'm primarily a salty umami guy. I I didn't know this until I read this art, but I like salty things and I like things with sensory heft. And so here's an example. Uh, People who are um umami people like I am, uh, we like things like coffee and tea and I've always liked coffee and tea. And in particular, I like this type of tea called zing tea. I don't know if anybody's uh, heard of this, but especially the green tea with the mint I really like it it 's awesome, but not everyone likes uh, green tea with mint. Not everyone, th- there, there is actually no tea that satisfies every single palate, and that 's why i can 't find zing mint uh, tea just anywhere. I actually have to go and hunt for it and sometimes buy it on uh, online and When it comes to snacks, some of you prefer salty to sweet, others of you prefer sweet to salty but then of course, a few years ago, we had the whole salty sweet thing come out. And then people who were salty sweet people were like, yeah! Nirvana, New Jerusalem has come, okay? So, so this is why, by the way, there are so many different flavors of beer now. Have you noticed that? I mean, all the craft beer and all that. We're just, we're, just, we're trying to please as many palates as possible. Anyway, you get the point, right? So Heinz ketchup is different. Ketchup has been around for a long time, a couple hundred years, at least. But in the late 19th century, Henry Heinz hit upon a Uh, A non-benzoate ketchup formula, until he did this, ketchup had always been made with this additive called benzoate, which actually they found out wasn't helpful in the formula, but he hit upon a non-benzoate ketchup formula that did something that no other food has ever done. With nearly perfect harmony and gusto, Heinz ketchup satisfies all five of our palates, all five of them equally at the same time. And this is really important. It does so with a blending and balancing on the palates that is unparalleled in the food world. This is known as amplitude. Uh, professional food tasters call this ability to do this amplitude. So one professional food taster, and some of you right now, like I would be, like I was when I was originally, there's a, you can have a career in food tasting? Yes, yes. And it takes years to develop your palate to be able to taste things in such a way that helps food researchers. And, and some of these, some of these uh, food, professional food tasters are making six figures, by the way. Okay, so it's, it, it's an actual career. Here's what one professional food taster wrote about Heinz ketchup. Now, remember, this is ketchup we're talking about here. Okay, here's what she wrote. The taste of Heinz ketchup begins at the tip of the tongue where our receptors for sweet and sour reside, move along the sides where where sour notes are the strongest, then hits the back of the tongue for umami and bitter in one long, glorious crescendo. This is ketchup being described as one long, glorious crescendo. And then she finishes by saying, how many things in the supermarket do this? One. Heinz ketchup. Another professional food taster calls the Heinz taste experience beautiful. Beautiful! You want a beautiful experience this afternoon? Go to McDonald's, get some fries, dip them in Heinz ketchup, and you will have a beautiful experience. Bet you never thought you'd hear that at church. Okay? So that's the setup. Now what I want to do is unpack that passage we read from John chapter 10... Want to reread it for us and kind of talk about that a little bit and then i'm going to tie all of this together And you're going to see exactly where i'm coming from. So john chapter 10. Let me reread that passage again This is jesus talking and he says truly truly I say to you he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way That man is a thief and robber. So Jesus is speaking metaphorically, as am I, about the catch-up in the gospel. So all of that's going to come together in, in a few minutes. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought all out all his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. Kind of like you now with the catch up. So Jesus again said to them, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers. But the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So let's talk a little bit about what Jesus is saying here. First of all, he's talking about a sheepfold. A sheepfold is the place where at night, You'd, you'd get several different flocks of sheep together and you would keep all the sheep there for the night so that they were protected, so that they could sleep, so that everything was kind of calm. They weren't going to be grazing at that time and the sheepfold was usually pushed against the side of a building and then fenced in or maybe it was pushed against the side of a, of a, of a very uh, uh, sharp cliff or something and then it was fenced in there. And, and all the sheep would go in there together and mix up together even if they were from uh, different Um, flocks and it was a safe place for them to be at night and the reason they could mix them was because each of the sheep knew their uh, shepherd's voice they all the shepherd had to do was go out and call his sheep and his sheep and only his sheep would come and follow him that's the reference that Jesus is making there and then the door or some people would call it a gate but there's only one door And that's the door where all the action was supposed to happen, going in and out. The shepherds would go in and out through that door. Uh, The sheep would go in and out through that door or through that gate. And it was only through that gate. Anybody who tries to enter the sheepfold by climbing over or, or making a break in the fence or doing anything else was considered a thief and a robber, and they were bad. Or they were bad shepherds. Only the good shepherd would go through this door. And then the gatekeeper was hired usually by the shepherds to keep watch over that door that particular door and just make sure that everything was fine so it's a door it's a gate whatever it is but they they would have this gatekeeper and sometimes the gatekeeper would be the shepherd himself or one of the shepherds now The thieves and the robbers that Jesus is talking about here very specifically were the leaders that the nation of Israel had had in their past and including all the leaders that they had had right up to the present. And what he's saying is that the leaders of Israel have historically led the sheep astray. And he's got in his mind as he's teaching this passages from both Jeremiah and Ezekiel that talk about bad shepherds. Let me give you four of them From Jeremiah, so that you have some context. So Jesus is thinking, for instance, about Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 21. For the shepherds are stupid and do not inquire of the Lord. Therefore, they have not prospered and all their flock is scattered. Jeremiah, of course, is talking uh, uh, about the the, um, the exile and and, and Babylon and all of that. Jeremiah chapter 50, verse 6. My people have been lost sheep. Their shepherds have led them astray, turning them away on the mountains. Israel has had bad shepherds. They have had shepherds that are essentially thieves and robbers. Jeremiah 23.1, woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture. And then Jeremiah 13.17, but if you will not listen, my soul will weep in secret for your pride. My eyes will weep bitterly and run down with tears because the Lord's flock has been taken captive. So so Jesus is talking about this history of bad shepherds who have, in a sense, been thieves and robbers of the people of Israel because they have not followed God. They have not pleased God. They have not loved God. They have not trusted God. And naturally, as we look at this teaching by Jesus here, 2,000 years later, you and I should be asking this question. Who or what are the bad shepherds in our life today? Who or what are the shepherds in our life who are leading us astray? Who are making promises to us that they cannot fulfill? Who are making promises to us that they never intended to fulfill? Who are making promises to us that are fulfilled but they're not exactly what we need? What are those things today that are leading us astray? Who are the thieves and robbers of our soul today? It's certainly not Jesus. Jesus is the good shepherd. The sheep hear His voice and they know His voice. Some of us may not realize this. Others of you may. But the voice is an amazing thing. Our memories can really key into voices. As human beings, we can really key into voices. Very often, we will recognize a person's voice before we will recognize their appearance. Have you ever noticed that? Uh, quite often I will be in another room doing something and Jackie or the girls or somebody will be watching TV in another room and somebody will enter the scene on, on, the, on the show that they're watching and I will hear their voice and I will know who it was, who that is, but I won't necessarily know their name and I'll call from the other room. That's the guy that was in Shawshank Redemption, right? Or that's, that's the guy that was, was in M.A.S.H. or whatever it, it is. And, and we recognize these voices. About six years ago, I was with a friend, and we were uh, walking up and down North Mountain. Anybody ever walk up and down North Mountain? You can walk up. Anyway, kind of nice. So we we're walking up and down two or three times, and I was out a little bit ahead of him, and so I was heading down as he was heading back up, okay? And for those of you that know real Spanish, don't hack on me about my bad Sp- I, I don't speak Spanish very well, but as I passed him, I, I just said to him, uno uno mas mi, mi amigo. That's it. I just said, one more, my friend. Uno mas mi amigo. I was going to go down and come back up and go down and I was going to be done. That's all I said. And I said it in Spanish, okay? Well, about 20 feet away was this group of women who were walking up. And, and so I walked past them, went down, started back up North Mountain. And as I'm coming up North Mountain, this group of women are, are coming down. And this one woman breaks away from, from the group, and as I'm going up, she kind of stops me, grabs my arm, and she says, hey, you're Frank Switzer, aren't you? And I said, yeah. She said, I'm Joyce Flores. I went to high school with you. This is more than 30 years since I have seen Joyce. She recognized my voice, and I was speaking lousy Spanish when I did it, and she recognized my voice. You need to understand, this whole voice thing is really important, but in this case, Jesus is using it as the voice being His teaching and His leadership. In other words, if you're really God's kid, if you're really somebody who's been saved by Jesus, and if there were ever a true measure, we talk about this all the time, you can't tell a person's heart, you really don't know if they're saved. Here's one way that Scripture would say you might have a pretty good idea whether or not this person is really in the camp of Jesus. Here's what it is. They listen to His voice. They listen to Jesus' teaching. They listen to His, uh, his, his um, doctrine. They believe His teaching and they obey His teaching. In other words, if you're somebody who constantly pushes back, constantly, everything that comes up, you're pushing back. If you're somebody who edits the word of God if you're somebody who says well that may have been true back then, but we don't have to worry about it now It's not true now or no, that's not what he meant This is what he really mean. and you completely change the word of God If you're if you're someone who's constantly discounting his teaching or rationalizing reasons why you don't have to follow his teaching As one scholar said you have absolutely No biblical assurance that you are actually a christian if you're constantly pushing back like that. Now, I know some of you right now are like, ee, what? Well, wait a minute, so it's, we can't question, we can't wonder about things? No, 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 it's okay to question, it's okay to wonder, it's okay to have that dialogue, I do the same thing, I'm pushing and pulling and all that stuff, but if you're somebody that just constantly says, no, I'm going a different way, I don't listen to his voice, that is a problem. And then verse seven says that Jesus is the door. He is the only way by which a person can become a part of the gospel of God. Jesus, in, in this passage, he says, I'm the, I'm the good shepherd, but I'm also the door. I'm the leader, but I'm also the one by, by, through whom you enter. Later on in John, just four chapters later, he says it this way, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And then in verse 8, again, these thieves and robbers were both Israel's leaders of old, I mean, you look at Jeremiah and Ezekiel, especially, and you can find that. But he's also talking about the present-day false messiahs. He's talking about the present-day professional religious people uh, who are around them, who are leading the people astray. He's talking about anybody who's got an agenda and leading people astray. And again, I would ask the question, who are the bad shepherds today? Who are the thieves and robbers today that we're dealing with? And then he ends and he says, listen, I came... That you would have this true abundant life. That you would have life and have it truly in an abundant way. That you would be fulfilled. In other words, total fulfillment comes from the Good Shepherd. And we need to understand, something's going to be our shepherd. Something will be our shepherd. We will submit our lives to something. We're going to submit it to um, our career, our relationships, we're going to submit our lives to some shepherd. Something is going to lead us. Something is going to form who we are. We're going to place our identity in something. And Jesus is saying, whatever shepherds there are out there that you may want to follow, I'm the good shepherd. I'm the one who, who you should follow because I will give you the abundant life that you've been seeking. And we know this because he says right at the end, he says the good shepherd lays down his life. Jesus went to the cross for us. He was willing to lay down His life for us. A good shepherd always lays down His life for His sheep. And what's interesting about that is is that most scholars say that He's referencing King David here. Jesus is of the line. His lineage is the Davidic line. His ancestors trace back to David and, of course, beyond. So he's part of the Davidic line. And David, before he was the king of Israel, was a shepherd. And he was a good shepherd because he laid down his life for his sheep. He constantly fought the tigers and the bears and and anybody who was trying to get at the sheep, David was willing to lay down his life for his sheep. Jesus laid down his life for his sheep, for you and me. That's why he's the good shepherd and that's why he gives us the abundant life. So, knowing that, how is the gospel then catch up? Well, like we said, there's five palates of taste. Sweet, salty, bitter, sour, and umami. And Jesus says that He's come to give us life and to give it to us abundantly. a A fulfilling, full, complete life. And He does that by overwhelming the palates of our heart. The palates of our inner being. We have palates in our inner being. Things that we desire. Things that we want. Things that sometimes we can't even articulate. That we know would fulfill us, but we're not even sure how to grasp it, how to talk about it, how to chase it down. And I spent a lot of time looking at what the palates of the human heart, the palates of our innermost being might be. And I settled on six of them. These are things that we we desire because this is the way God created us. He created us for a desire to follow Him and to have the things that He can give us. And the Gospel satisfies each one of these things in a complete and unique way apart from the world. Apart from the world being able to do that. And here they are. The six palates of the human heart are knowing, loving, goodness, stewardship, generosity, and wisdom. Knowing, loving, goodness, stewardship, generosity and wisdom let me just take a few minutes to talk about each one and how the gospel satisfies each one of these first of all knowing there is a tremendous desire for each of us to know others and to be known to know God and to be known by God if you go back to the creation story and I'm going to say this a lot in the next 10 or 12 minutes if you go back to the creation story you begin to understand how important it is that God knows us and that we know God, and that that is something that we were created for and is is a deep, intense need and desire on our part to know and to be known, not just by God, but by each other. Some people would say it's really intimacy. We have this deep desire in our hearts, in our inner beings for intimacy with others, for vulnerability, for acceptance and relationship. You and I were not created for isolation and for loneliness. And I know that we live in a culture now where there's a lot of people living in their parents' basement and they got a computer and they think they've got it made and they like that life. It's unsustainable. We were not created for that. We were created for intimacy. Genesis chapter 2, verse 25, is the last verse before chapter 3 and the fall. And the curse and the original sin. And this is what that verse says. And the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. This is a verse not about physical intimacy and sex. This is a verse about emotional intimacy, about relationship, about vulnerability, about an intimacy at a level that you and I will never approach again until the New Jerusalem, but the Gospel gets us as close as possible. Knowing Jesus brings us into an understanding of what true intimacy is because we're knowing somebody who put His life on the line for us. So knowing is the first one. The second one is loving. We also were created with a need to be loved and to love. We need to be loved by God and by others, and we need to love God and others. Uh, Matthew 22, verses 36 through 40 says this. Somebody walks up to Jesus and says this. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, this is the great and first commandment and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. What he's saying here is that knowing Jesus, embracing Him, coming full into the gospel, the good news of Jesus is what gives us the power to love and to live like this. To be able to love God with abandon and to love Everyone else with abandon. The gospel is what gives us the power to do this. And by the way, notice that Jesus references the law and the prophets there. Let let me just take this little side trip for about 30 seconds. As evangelicals, you know, very often we tend to pound on the law as kind of a bad thing. And we need to be reminded that Jesus did not come to destroy the law, but he came to fulfill the law. And that the reason that God gave the law was to give us life. The law was never a bad thing. And it still isn't a bad thing. In fact, if you think about the Ten Commandments, just think about that. If everybody lived a life based on the Ten Commandments, do you think we'd have as many problems as we have right now? The answer would be no. The law actually does give us life. Jesus is saying that if you love like this, empowered by the Gospel, you're just going to naturally fulfill the law without even thinking about it. You don't have to keep a list anymore. You can get away from those tablets, and then the gospel not only equips us for loving, but it also does it for us. I, I love this passage in Romans chapter eight. Listen to this. This is the uh, the last um, quarter of Romans chapter eight, where Paul writes this. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ uh, Christ Jesus is the one who died, and more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. He's praying for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Here it is. nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The gospel fulfills this desperate need of ours, this desire of ours, to not only be loved, but also to be able to love. It empowers us to be able to love this way. And remember, at Redemption, we talk about this all the time. Genuine gospel love is a love that always does what's best for the other, no matter what that is. And second of all, genuine gospel love, at the center of genuine gospel love, is always death. Death is always at the center of that that kind of love. We have to die to ourselves in order to be able to love with this gospel-centered kind of love. And and really, if you think about it, don't we all desire to have that sinful, self-centered, dark self die and go away? And the gospel does that for us. The third palette is goodness. The need for us to be okay, to be holy, to be pure, to be righteous, to be justified and we know that this is a need of people because we live in a culture that for years the cultural mantra has been human beings are what? Basically good. Basically, you're basically good. You're good. You're good. You're good. The, the things that we see that are wrong, those those are those are just little blips on the screen, but we are basically good. But you and I know that's foolishness. Because if we were basically good, why? Why? Why is the world so broken? Why are so many things so bro- Why can't we truly trust people and institutions? It's because we aren't basically good. We've got issues. But we desire to be good. We desire to be holy. We desire to be righteous. We desire to stand before God justified. But we have a problem. Jeremiah seventeen nine even says it. The heart, the human heart is wicked and deceptive, of, uh, deceptive above all things. Who can understand it? Who can trust it? Nobody can. Because we have a problem. But Paul writes in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, Do not be conformed to this world, but instead be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Our desire to be good is not fulfilled by us, but rather by the gospel in us, Christ in us, the Holy Spirit in us. And so that palate of the heart is also completely fulfilled by the gospel. And then the fourth one, stewardship. Again, if you go back to the created order, the created story, Genesis 1 and 2, you see that you and I were created for stewardship. We were created for lordship. We were created to rule, but not in a domineering, oppressive way. But we were created to be lords under the lordship of God. In other words, we were to steward things. We were were entrusted with all of the great resources that He had made for us. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 26 says this Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion. Let them steward over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heaven, and and the livestock, and over all the earth. to be stewards, to be lords, to be rulers, because God created us that way and gave us that mandate. But we are lords under His lordship, under His direction. And He's given us everything that we need to flourish. Do you understand? God created this earth filled with all of these good resources. He kept creating and saying, it's good, it's good, it's good. And then He just gave that to the first human beings. Here, this is yours. Go and flourish. Go and make. Go and create culture. Go and prosper. We are stewards of the resources that he gave us. And, and, and he says, You're going to work. You know, a lot of people mistakenly think that work is, is part of the curse of the fallen, Genesis 3. No, no, no. We were working in the garden before Genesis 3. What came in Genesis 3 with the curse, with the sin, with the fall, was that work became toilsome. Work became hard. By the sweat of our brow, we're going to do it now. Then work became that thing that you really don't enjoy as much as we're supposed to. Work originally was this wonderful culture-making stewardship of resources and we got to create with it. And it was awesome. God created us with this tremendous gift that he gave it to us that gave to us and the gospel redeems that brokenness of that hard work and that culture making and gives it purpose. Paul writes in Colossians 3, "In all things work heartily as to the Lord and not to men." And so we we know that the palette of the human heart is is knowing and loving and goodness and stewardship and then the fifth one is generosity. You and I just know, we inherently know that fulfillment comes not through self-centeredness, not through taking, taking, taking. We know that fulfillment doesn't come there because we've been doing that all of our lives and we haven't been fulfilled. But rather, we know that fulfillment can come through service and giving and providing. And in fact, all kinds of, for decades now, social science research in psychology, sociology, and anthropology has confirmed this truth, that the happiest Most fulfilled people are those who are generous, not those who are constantly taking, those who are constantly wondering, what's in it for me? Jesus even says, Paul quotes him, it is more blessed to give than receive. We just had Christmas, and I will tell you that for for as long as I can remember, the greatest joy I get on Christmas Day, is not opening my presents, but watching other people open their presents. I just, I just, I I would rather do, people constantly asking me as I'm sitting there with an unopened present, why don't you open your present, Frank? I'm watching everybody else. I love doing that. And I'll tell you what, I love people, I love watching people receive the gospel too. So in our generosity, we're also, we've received the gospel of Jesus Christ and we also pass that on to other people. And then the last one is wisdom. We desperately desire to be wise. It's something that's just inherent in our being. We want wisdom. We want to make the right decisions. We want to do well. We desire to do that. Uh, the Bible is filled with, with information and teaching and doctrine about wisdom and you can kind of sum it up in, in this verse from Proverbs chapter 9, but you find it throughout the Bible. Here's that verse from Proverbs 9. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is insight. We want wisdom. We want insight. We want discernment. We want understanding. And if you were to define what wisdom is, you can just walk out and you can say, "Tell me, say, give me a definition of wisdom. And most people would say this. It is the application of what we know. Wisdom is the application of what we know. In other words, wisdom assumes that people know things, but the problem is, is that just because you have knowledge, it doesn't necessarily make you wise. You have to know how to apply that knowledge. I mean, there's lots of smart people out there, but not everybody is wise. Amen? Okay. Here's the deal, though. That That's, that's, that's true about wisdom, but it's not a complete picture of what wisdom is. When When... The Israelites would write about wisdom and teach about wisdom and when Paul would write about it and when Jesus would talk about wisdom it was something much deeper than that Here, here's in the Hebrew language and in the Hebrew culture here's what uh, wisdom was it was competency in regard to the realities of life competence in regard to the realities of life let me explain that a second in other words wisdom is the ability to apply what we know to how life really works not to how we wish it would work. And that's a big difference. A lot of us think that if we can just apply what we know to make life work the way we want it to, that would be wisdom. That's not wisdom. True wisdom is applying what we know to how life really works, not how we wish it would work. See, one of the problems is that you and I are 21st century, rugged, western, individualist, postmodern people who have been told for decades now that if you don't like your reality, you can just change your reality. You don't like who you are? Change who you are. You don't like your, your gender? Change your gender. You don't like your situation? Change your situation. How's that been working for everybody? See, we've been told that this is what we can do, but wisdom is realizing the foolishness and folly Of that ridiculous notion and instead it makes us competent in the true realities of life it allows us to navigate what's really happening so wisdom understanding and insight helps us to make sense of life and to be properly guided through the realities and challenges of life as they really are and we all want this right we all want wisdom in regard to our relationships to our careers to our finances to everything that we're doing we all want this wisdom well scripture says the beginning of this is to know god and to fear god to, to, to embrace the good news of jesus christ that's by the way that word beginning is really important that tells us that the acquisition of wisdom is a long process and it takes our entire lives to work on this that's a sort of understand the, the of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. And notice there that the, the fear of the Lord is seen as something good, something helpful. So, the abundant life that Jesus talks about, I would argue, is, is, is this palette of the human heart, the inner being, the, the knowing, the loving, the goodness, the stewardship, the generosity, and the wisdom. You could say it this way it's amplitude for our heart. The gospel is amplitude for our heart and so you heard me use that quote from the from the professional taste tester earlier about um, ketchup about Heinz ketchup I changed it a little bit for the gospel and this is what I'll end with the gospel of Jesus begins at the tip of life where our receptors for knowing and loving reside moves into our family and relationships where goodness and generosity notes are the strongest then hits our vocations for stewardship and wisdom in one long, glorious crescendo. How many things in the marketplace of reality do this? Only one. The Gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me pray, and Cody's going to come and lead us into our time of uh, the Lord's Supper and reflection. God, we thank You that You have come through Your Son to give us life and to to give it to us abundantly. And so God... Let us embrace that life. Let us embrace the gospel and let us do it with gratitude and joy because it's the only thing that will satisfy the palates of our heart. God, help us to do that. By the power of Your Son, we pray it in His name. Amen.